Lesson 4 for January 16-22, to Conflict and Crisis, The Judges. Sabbath afternoon, January 16. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the good things you give to us in your word, and we thank you for the many stories we've looked at so far this quarter that show your leading and your guidance, but also the faithfulness of your people through the ages. And as we look at some more this week, we pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us and help us to be faithful too, just as you are, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our memory text this week is 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. Let's read that again, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, I smile at my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. The time of the judges was a chaotic period in sacred history. God's people did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Lord sold them into the hands of an oppressor, the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer who brought peace to the land. That is, until the same sad cycle started again. Deborah, one of Israel's judges, was remarkable for the confidence that she inspired in the men around her. She and Jael are heroines, while the men needed encouraging because of their timidity and lack of faith. A recurring sub-theme in the great controversy is also seen in the story of Gideon, when God's people face impossible odds. Samson was one of the last of the judges. After him, the nation descended into anarchy and hopelessness. He was the reluctant hero, one who was more interested in chasing women than in following God, a parallel to his countrymen who were more interested in worshipping idols than in serving the Lord. Samuel brings hope to the nation. Under him, a new leadership structure with kings was established, and one of his last acts was to anoint the future King David. Sunday, January 17, Deborah. The story of Deborah adds interesting detail to the great controversy theme. Here we see the people of God suffering oppression and facing impossible odds. This parallels what we observed in Revelation 12, with the incredibly unfair contest between a seven-headed dragon and a newborn baby, which we looked at on Tuesday study in Lesson 1. The main characters in this story include Jabin, king of Canaan, Sisera, his army chief, and Deborah, a prophetess and a judge, one who settled civil disputes between opposing parties, who had a very unusual degree of authority and influence for a woman of that time. Question. Read Judges chapter 4. In what ways do we see the great controversy theme expressed here? In the end... Who alone brought victory to Israel despite their unworthiness? Well, let's begin Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. 
When Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Harasheth, Hagayim. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had nine hundred chariots of iron, and for twenty years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Then she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Take with you ten thousand men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver them into your hand. And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. So she said, I will surely go with you, and nevertheless there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. He went up with ten thousand men under his command, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite and the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth tree of Zanaim, which is beside Kedesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. So... Sisera gathered together all his chariots, nine hundred chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him, from Harasheth Hagayim to the river Kishon. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with ten thousand men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Hagayim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. However, Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heba the Kenite, for there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heba the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera, and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not fear. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him with a blanket. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a jug of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the door of the tent, and if any man comes and inquires of you and said, Is there any man here? You shall say, No. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand, and went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, and it went down into the ground, for he was fast asleep and weary. 
so he died. And then, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you seek. And when he went into her tent, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin king of Canaan in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin king of Canaan until they had destroyed Jabin king of Canaan. The heroine of the story is Heber's wife, Jael, who is not afraid to identify with God's people and who played a crucial role in the defeat of God's enemies. Judging her actions from our perspective today isn't easy. The last thing we should do, though, is use her deeds to justify deception and violence in order to achieve our ends, no matter how right those ends might be. In the discussions leading up to the conflict, Deborah assures Barak that the battle will be God's. An echo of the great controversy, for sure. Two verbs are used to describe how God would do this in Judges chapter 4 and verse 7. He will draw Sisera, the word suggests catching fish in a net, to the river Kishon, where he will deliver him into Barak's hand. Deborah's song of thanksgiving in Judges chapter 5 reveals some of the details. Sisera's chariots became bogged down in the narrow passes near the river, Kishon, because of heavy rain. The heavens and the clouds pour, and the mountains gush water, producing a flash flood that sweeps away many enemy soldiers. And Israel is delivered. So, to finish the day, think of the confidence these men of war had in Deborah. While on one level that was good, obviously, why must we always be careful in how much confidence we put in anyone? Monday, January 18, Gideon. Question. Read Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. What is happening here? Also have a look at Judges chapter 6 and verse 10. Judges chapter 6 and verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And we'll look at verse 10 as well. It says... Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God, do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. After Deborah the land enjoyed peace for the next forty years, but soon Israel was back in the hands of oppressors. This time it was the Midianites who, with their allies, would enter Israel and destroy all the newly planted crops and steal the livestock as we read in verses 3 to 5. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up, also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. Then they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. 
Israel became greatly impoverished and cried out to the Lord in verses 6 and 7. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel. They realized that their fashionable gods were of no use now. Question. Read Judges chapter 6, verses 12 to 16. What did the angel of the Lord say to Gideon, and what was Gideon's reaction? Shouldn't he have known why they were facing what they were? And we'll look at verses 7 to 10 as well. Let's read 7 to 10 first. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you, and gave you their land. Also I said to you, I am the Lord your God, do not fear the God of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell." But you have not obeyed my voice. And we'll continue on to from 12 to 16. Or we'll put 11 in there too. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abiazarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valour. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites." Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Despite Gideon's complaint, which was unwarranted, they were disobedient, that's why they were oppressed, God was ready to deliver, again, but this time through Gideon. How interesting that God would call Gideon a mighty man of valour, even though Gideon viewed himself as something else entirely. O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house." No question. A crucial component of Gideon's strength was his own sense of unimportance and weakness. Notice, too, what Gideon had asked of the Lord in Judges chapter 6, verses 36 to 40. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will... Know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. 
Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. That is, aware of the odds against them and his own weakness, he sought for special assurance of God's presence. Thus, we have here a man who fully realized his utter dependence upon the Lord. We can read in Judges 7 about Gideon's amazing success against the oppressors of his people and God's deliverance of Israel. So, to finish today, why did the Lord choose to use fallen humans in the course of this deliverance? That is, could not he himself have, as it says in Matthew 26.53, called more than twelve legions of angels to do what was needed for Israel at that time? What role do we as fallen human beings have in both the great controversy and the spreading of the gospel? Tuesday, January 19, Samson. The battle lines between good and evil are blurred in the story of Samson. His life starts in impressive fashion with an announcement from the angel of the Lord that he is to be a Nazarite from birth. The angel instructs Samuel's parents on how to prepare for their special baby. The mother is told not to drink alcohol or to eat forbidden food, as we read in Judges chapter 13 and verse 4. Now therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink and not to eat anything unclean. And in verses 13 and 14. So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her... Let her observe. Now, some of those things are mentioned in um, Leviticus chapter 11. And um, I won't read all of those because it's a very long chapter. But God indeed had special plans for Samson. Unfortunately, things didn't work out as well as they could have. From Patriarchs and Prophets, page 563, we read, Just as he was entering upon manhood, the time when he must execute his divine mission, the time above all others when he should have been true to God, Samson connected himself with the enemies of Israel. He did not ask whether he could better glorify God when united with the object of his choice, or whether he was placing himself in a position where he could not fulfill the purpose to be accomplished by his life. To all who seek first to honour him, God has promised wisdom, but there is no promise to those who are bent upon self-pleasing. Question. Read Judges chapter 14, verses 1 through to 4. How is it possible that God used Samson's weakness for women as an occasion to move against the Philistines? Well, let's have a look at... 
Judges chapter 14, verses 1 to 4. Now Samson went down to Timnah, and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I have seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now therefore get her for me as a wife. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren, or among all my people, that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Samson moved against the Philistines in a number of ways, each in angry response to personal slights. First, in Judges chapter 14, verse 19, he killed 30 men and took their clothes back to his wedding feast to pay a debt. Then he destroyed their crops when his wife was given to his best man, in chapter 14, verse 20, and chapter 15, verses 1 to 5. Then Samson killed many in revenge for the Philistines killing his wife and her father, in Judges chapter 15. When the Philistines tried to avenge that action in the same chapter, he killed one thousand with a donkey's jawbone. Finally, he pulled down their temple and killed three thousand for blinding him. To finish the day, talk about a flawed hero. There seems to be very little from Samson that we should seek to emulate, even though he is listed in Hebrews 11.32 with some pretty exalted figures. Let's have a look at that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets. Obviously, there's more to this story than meets the eye. Think about what God could have done with Samson. What about ourselves? How much more could we do if we were living up to our potential? Wednesday, January 20. Ruth. Rather than talking about vast enemy armies that threaten God's people, the story of Ruth speaks about something smaller, a family almost dying out, but instead being revived. While it includes two large themes, God's creation being destroyed and his people being under threat, Ruth also tells of the great controversy on a personal level, where it is in reality always being waged. It is no surprise that the land of Judah suffered a famine during the time of the judges, as we read in Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled that there was a famine in the land, and a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Also in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 48, Therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you, in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, in need of everything, and he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. 
And Deuteronomy 32, verse 24, They shall be wasted with hunger, devoured by pestilence and bitter destruction. I will also send against them the teeth of beasts, with the poison of serpents of the dust. And Judges 17, verse 6, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own sight. And... Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was a sign that the people of the covenant had forsaken God. Sin and rebellion had reduced the land flowing with milk and honey to a barren dust bowl. But in the book of Ruth, God visited the land and put his life back into it, giving them bread again, as recorded in Ruth chapter one chapter one verse six when Elimelech his wife Naomi and their two sons first went to Moab they did so because they wanted a future the land of the enemy gave temporary relief but with a husband and two sons dead Naomi finally decided to go back home question read Ruth chapter one and verse 8 and 16 and 17. What is the significance of Ruth wanting to go with Naomi? Ruth chapter 1 and verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each to their mother's house. The Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. So, she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, Surely we will return with you to your people. And verse 16 and 17. Or we'll begin at verse 15. And she said, Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you or to turn back from following after you. For wherever you go... I will go, and wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. Ruth was from an enemy nation that had on many occasions tried to destroy Israel, but she chose to identify with God's people and worship their God. In addition, she found favour in the eyes of her adopted homeland, not just in Boaz, but also by the people who knew of her. Boaz was confident that she also found favour in God's eyes, and taking his admiration for her a step further, he agreed to marry her. However, there was a closer relative than Boaz who had first claim to the land of the dead man if he married Ruth. The nearer relative was not interested in another wife, however, because it complicated his financial plans. At this point, the assembly of witnesses blessed Ruth, likening her to the great women of Israel's history, as recorded in Ruth chapter 4 verse 11 and 12, which was fulfilled when she became a forebearer of the Messiah, as we read in Matthew chapter 1 verses 5 and 6. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab, Boaz begot Obed by Ruth, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David the king. David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. 
talk about a living happily ever after story. Unfortunately, there aren't too many of those outside of the Bible either. Of course, there are not too many of those in life. Here too, though, we can see how, despite the ebb and flow of life, God's will shall prevail in the end. And that's good news for all who love and trust Him. Thursday, January 21, Samuel. What does the beginning of the book of Samuel have to do with the great controversy? There's no obvious threat to the created order, and there are no vast armies at the border. The attack of evil is more subtle, but no less real. Question. Read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 12 to 25. How do we see the reality of good versus evil revealed in these sad verses? 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priests, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, the Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did to all Israel, and how they lay with women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not a good report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father, because the Lord desired to kill them. But, as Ellen White writes in Patriarchs and Prophets 575, although he, Eli, had been appointed to govern the people, he did not rule his own household. Eli was an indulgent father, loving peace and ease. He did not exercise his authority to correct the evil habits and passions of his children. 
Rather than contend with them or punish them, he would submit to their will and give them their own way. End of quote. In contrast to them, we see a small boy dressed as a priest. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, But Samuel ministered before the Lord even as a child, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, who, like Jesus, grew in stature and in favour both with the Lord and men, as we read in verse 26. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favour both with the Lord and men. This Samuel, of course, went on to become a powerful and faithful leader in Israel. And as it says in 1 Samuel 3.20, all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. This does not mean, however, that everything went well. The nation faced war with the Philistines, and the two sons of Eli were killed. The Philistines captured the Ark of God, and 98-year-old Eli died when he heard the news, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 14 to 18. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of the tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli, Eli was eighty, no, sorry, 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened to my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened, when he made mention of the ark of God, that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Unfortunately, Samuel was to face the same problem that Eli did. Sons who didn't follow in the footsteps of faithfulness and fidelity, as we read in 1 Samuel 8, verses 1 to 7. Now it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, but his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. Samuel marked a transition point in the history of God's people. He was the last of the judges and a key figure in the developing great controversy. His stable influence guided the people at a critical time. It's a pity his sons did not follow in his steps. But God is not dependent on human dynasties. As a result of their apostasy, the elders demanded a king. Not the best move, as centuries of later history would reveal. 
So to finish today, no matter our own home life, good or bad, we are responsible for whom we serve in the great controversy. Whatever mistakes you may have made, why must you always remember that today, now, is never too late to make it right with the Lord? Tomorrow might be too late, but not today. Friday, January 22. The Bible is known for not glossing over human sin, human evil. If it did, how could it, and portray accurately, the state of humanity? An especially sharp depiction of human evil is found in 1 Samuel chapter 2, when the sons of Eli are presented in contrast to the young Samuel. 1 Samuel 2.12 reads, The sons of Eli were sons of Belial, they knew not the Lord. Notice first the contrast. Lineage played an important role in biblical life, and in this one line, the sons of Eli are now instead the sons of Belial. Belial is a rich word, used in a number of forms and contexts, almost always negative. In fact, it is related to the Hebrew Biel and Bli, which mean no or not or without. Belial means itself worthless, useless, and in other places is used in the same way as it was in regard to Eli's son. That is, other men were called the sons of Belial, and that's recorded in Second Chronicles and First Kings. In Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12, it is equated with the wicked. In other ancient Near Eastern literature, Belial is seen as another name for Satan himself. In almost every use in the Bible, it appears as a negative. As human beings created in the image of God, they were created for a purpose and to have meaning, and yet, according to the Bible, these men were all but worthless, sons of worthlessness. What a tragic waste of life. We are either for the Lord, doing something of meaning and purpose for Him, or we are, in the end, worthless. That makes sense, too, considering that our whole existence and purpose for life comes only from Him. And that brings us to our two discussion questions for this week. 1. The Bible makes it clear there is no middle ground in the great controversy. We are either on one side or the other, Christ's or Satan's. Yet, life as we know it doesn't always unfold with such clear and stark contrast, does it? Sometimes we aren't sure just what is the right decision or what is the wrong one, even with moral situations as well. It's not always easy to determine what to do. What are some ways we can seek guidance to help us to make right choices when, at times, it's not so easy to know just what the right choice is? And two... In what ways have people whom you have looked up to sometimes disappointed you? At the same time, in what ways have you perhaps disappointed those who once looked up to you? What have you learned from these incidents about faith, trust, grace and human frailty? 
Inside Story The Dream Comes True, Part 3 And I think this might be the end of the story. The story thus far. Samantha is a nurse in the Amazon jungle. She often faces emergencies where she must depend fully upon God. One evening, a man came to the clinic whose hand had been caught in a grinder and a boy who had been bitten by a pit viper. The only way to save their lives was by taking the fast boat to the nearest hospital two hours away. At last, the little group arrived at Manakapuru, the closest town. The boy was admitted to the local hospital, but the man was taken to the large city of Manaus, a journey of nearly two more hours where he could receive specialised treatment. Samantha didn't see the man again, but about a week after was able to visit the boy in hospital. She says, He was doing so well, and I understood that our emergency attendance to him was crucial for his life. If we hadn't been there to help, he would have died. When I see the boy now, I think, Jesus is awesome. He put his hand on the situation and saved two lives. I don't know how to express how wonderful it is. It was a real present from Jesus. The boy is fine now. He loves to play soccer, and we were able to help him. Life in the village isn't easy. With very limited water and electricity only three hours a day, no phones or internet, and very little contact with the outside world. Samantha often goes weeks without being able to connect with her family. But she doesn't mind the inconveniences. She says, Just in the time I've been here, I feel my life has changed my mind, and everything. I realize now what's really important in life. I understand much more about Jesus, and I believe that he brought me here. I can help the people. I can offer them salvation. Jesus uses me to help others, and then he blesses me even more than I can give. Samantha is currently serving in the Amazon region for one year. Afterwards, she plans to return home unless God indicates otherwise. I don't know his plans yet, she says. I just want to hear the voice of Jesus. You need to stay. You need to go. But I know that my life is changed, and when I go back, I'm a different person. I have heard Jesus, and I just want to use my talents and nursing to bring salvation to others. For others considering mission service, Samantha shares some advice. When I first thought about mission service, I thought, maybe just one week or month. But here I've learned that mission service changes your entire life and that Jesus has a plan for your life. I used to think that getting a well-paying job, a car, an apartment, all that was so important. But now I can see that it's really very little compared to what Jesus has for you. Listen to Jesus and maybe he will change your entire life too. That story was written by Gina Wallen, editor of The Mission Quarterlies. This week's lesson has been read by Dr. Percy Harold in the studios of Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired. It is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department and through the services of Hope Channel. Remember, God is always faithful. Faithful.